Thank you all for joining. Welcome to everyone for one of the Oxford Middle East Centre's book review sessions. It's really a pleasure for me to welcome back one of our alumni and a, a colleague of mine from uh, my doctoral days at Princeton. So Aaron Roxinger, who uh, is um, a, an MPhil graduate from over a decade ago at this point uh, at Oxford in the Modern Middle Eastern Studies program, and afterwards joined Princeton, uh, which is where we met for the first time, and completed his PhD and uh, his first book under Muhammad Qasim Zaman. Um, and we actually attended some of the same classes. So it's really a wonderful opportunity to have you back, Aaron, uh, and really would like to welcome you to talk about your second book. So uh, Aaron has uh, a young scholar who has been remarkably prolific uh, at this point in his career, has published two books and I guess uh, over a dozen articles at this point, perhaps. Only 10, but I understand that there's inflation these days. So you know, <laughs> I can see how we get to 12. Right, right. And uh, and so um, your work has been particularly focused on Egypt, um, modern Egypt and the movement currently known as Salafism. In many respects, your interlocutors are people like Henri Lozier and uh, I guess to a certain extent, someone like Walter Armbrust, who would have been one of the early introducers for you to e Egypt, so to speak. And uh, your first book was Practicing Islam in Egypt, um, Print Media and the Islamic Revival. And I, I think it's a, a very significant contribution that complicates the sort of the generic picture of the Islamic revival that is seen as suddenly emerging out of out of the blue almost in the 1970s. And you really sort of uh, do wonderful digging and, and looking at uh, exactly sort of the context in which various actors are engaging that uh, in that process and not just sort of it's not a uniform process by any means. So I, I think that that was a wonderful sort of contribution to the literature on contemporary Islam. And now you've given us another one within four years of your first book, as far as I, I can see which is a really impressive achievement and this one is uh, once again you had you had the screen just on the page a moment ago so i uh, unfortunately cannot recall the name off the top of my head so in the shade of the sunnah salafi piety of the 20th century middle east i'll put it up thank you thank you i was uh, going to depend on that as a crutch and uh, i've started reading the text uh, really sort of brilliantly written um, and always wonderful to see you engage the sort of literature so consummately and thoughtfully, and really looking forward to your um, presentation for the next 40 or so minutes, and then we'll open the floor up for questions. I just want to remind participants that if you have any questions, you can put them in the uh, chat. But if anyone wants to, since there's a relatively manageable number of participants, uh, if you'd like to uh, ask your question orally, Aaron and I are happy to sort of welcome you to do that. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome you, Aaron, to go ahead and uh, present. Thank you. Osama, it's wonderful to be here virtually. It would be even more lovely to be in person, uh, but that would be a very long journey. Um, I obviously have very, very fond memories of my days at the Middle East Center at St. Anthony's College. You noted that I had worked with Walter Ambrose when I was a grad student at Oxford, um, and in many respects, working with Walter was really formative in terms of asking the kinds of questions of social practice um, and performance that lie at the heart of this book. I later went down the Islamic studies rabbit hole, but this was really before, and um, I sometimes joke that, you know, insofar as I studied with Walter first, I wasn't socialized as an Islamicist. But I think that actually that different socialization has real benefits in terms of thinking through some of the questions of Islamic studies. Um, I want to thank also Michael Willis for inviting me, um, and also to Caroline for taking care of all the details for this talk. 
And yes, I think back very fondly to our days as grad students at Princeton and some of the same classes, um, and also to kind of seeing the work that you and other of our classmates have produced since then. So I'll begin this talk by noting a moment about 12 years ago, in the early 2010s, when I first came across the term gender mixing, as I was doing my dissertation on the rise of the Islamic revival in 1970s Egypt. I assumed that this came from Salafis and in some sense, as a precaution, decided to verify that it actually came from Salafis and to establish when Salafis came to express this concern. What I discovered in the process that the Salafi call for gender segregation as a non-negotiable principle only emerged in the 1970s was ultimately to serve as the basis for this, for not just an article that was published in Islamic Law and Society, but also for this book project more broadly on the emergence of distinctly Salafi social practices. Now on the screen, you can see the cover of my book, which itself is based on a 1980 pamphlet that features prominently in chapter four of the book. Um, this is a pamphlet entitled Flaunting and the Danger of Women Joining Men in Their Workplace. It's published by a leading Salafi scholar from Saudi Arabia by the name of Abdelaziz Ibn Baz, or Ibn Baz for short. And Ibn Baz will reoccur in this story. Now, this particular pamphlet was published by a now defunct Egyptian publishing house, Maktabat Salem, and is unusual among depictions, among editions, excuse me, of this text and of Salafi text more broadly in its very visceral depiction of the issue at hand. On the cover of this text, we have an image of an allegedly flaunting woman. We have her brown hair flowing out from under her blue cloak. Her blue cloak has a tear on the front meant to suggest a plunging neckline. And she has a bottle of wine, a glass of wine, and a deck of cards on the table. Now, this image offers a vivid depiction of Salafism's concern with visibility, which is a key theme of today's talk, and its focus on regulating public behaviors. And it summons a variety of effective responses, enthusiastic agreement for people who are on board with the Salafi project, and for those who are not, a range of other reactions. Now, if a picture is worth a thousand words, this illustration reflects how Salafis came to articulate a vision of public piety premised on a linkage between ethics and visibility. And this is going to be a theme that I come back to frequently. Today, however, I'm going to be telling a story not of gender segregation, but of the emergence of a distinctly Salafi beard. I want to begin with the basics of our story. In the 1980s, Egyptian Salafi elites, in conversation with like-minded scholars from across the Levant to the Persian Gulf, came to a consensus regarding a seemingly secondary question, the required length of the beard. Now in the process, as they cited the precedent of the first three generations of the Muslim community, known as the pious ancestors, Salaf al-Salaf, they agreed that the properly Islamic beard was a minimum of a fist of the kabda, and it was to be paired with a trimmed mustache. The question is how we understand the emergence of the Salafi beard. Now, one way to understanding Salafism as a project is to understand it as a literalist interpretive project. And that in some respects is how Salafis portray it themselves. The argument is that the meaning of the Quran and the Hadith corpus, the authenticated Hadith corpus is self-explanatory. But 
the literalism explanation doesn't do much for us here because we have a time gap. Salafism in Egypt emerges in the 1920s and 30s, but the beard doesn't emerge as a consensus issue until the 1980s. So we essentially have a 50 year time gap. And so the explanation of literalism there doesn't make a ton of sense or if we are to take literalism as an explanation, we need to actually consider literalism as a highly complex interpretive project that doesn't necessarily offer clear answers from the get-go. Now, in talking about the minimum of the fist for the beard, we also might reference the pre-modern fic tradition in which this minimum appears quite regularly. This is an easily visible measurement. It's accessible to all men. You simply need to hold up your fist. And to say that there is precedent for the minimum of the fist in the pre-modern fic tradition is clear. But what's interesting here is not the fact that there's precedent, but how that precedent is utilized in a distinctly 20th century project of religio-political mobilization and change. Uh, and finally, we might come to the discursive Islamic ethical tradition approach, most popular in the works of Sabah Mahmoud, and Charles Hirschkin, inspired by Talal Assad's work, uh, which sees Islamic piety in contemporary Egypt, generally Salafi piety in particular, as reflective of a long-standing ethical project in which visible signs are secondary and reflective of internal states, but they are not central to those internal states. And part of the argument of, for the linkage between ethics and visibility that I'm making today is for the centrality of visible performance to piety. And this brings me to a quote that I have at the bottom of the slide regarding the novel function of the beard in Salafi circles in the 1980s. And this is from a, an article published in 1988 by the leading Egyptian Salafi organization, Ansar al-Sunnah al-Muhammadiyah. And this is an organization that this project really centers on. Uh, it centers on its publications specifically. And it's by a leading preacher within the organization during this period, a man named Ahmed Taha Nasser. And he declared in 1988, the beard serves as a noble announcement to introduce society to what it means to be Sunni. Now, we first might note that Sunni here is a claim by Salafis to the Salafi understanding of Islam being the, what should be the Sunni understanding of Islam. But in some sense, I'm more interested in the first part of this quote a noble announcement to introduce society. We have a concern with visibility here. We have a concern with a social body known as society here. The relationship implied here between one's visible practices and the broader social whole. And this is gonna be something we get into in greater detail in the talk. So in sum, when we look at Ahmed Taha Nasser's invocation of the function of the beard in the 1980s, it raises as many questions as it answers. Um, and I'm going to speak to provide some answers to the question of where this understanding of the beard comes from, how it links between ethics and visibility, and what that can tell us about Salafism's development as a movement. Now, this project began out of a series of debates over the definition of Salafism that really were occurring in the early 2000s through the early 2010s, and in some sense culminated in Henri Lazier's 2016 book, The Making of Salafism, which was a conceptual history of the term Salafia and 
argued that it came by the 1920s and 30s to refer to a commitment on the one hand to neo-Hanbali theology, and on the other hand to deriving all law from the Quran and the Sunnah. And I really build off of Lazier's work here with a crucial um, addition, which is that if we want to understand the conceptual history of what it means to be Salafi, it's not enough to note rightly, as Lozier does, that to be Salafi is to be defined by these two intellectual characteristics, by one a theological approach and the other a legal approach, that these approaches actually are manifested in practice. And if we want to understand Salafi approaches to theology and law, we also have to understand Salafi practice because it is precisely in the realm of practice that questions of theology and law often play out. Now, I've distinguished myself a little bit um, among folks who study Salafism as the guy who focuses on beards and pants. And I, I take this with uh, sort of some amusement because I actually think that understanding beards and pants which is to say understanding Salafism as a social movement is really crucial to understanding how this movement developed. It's not secondary or separate to questions in theology of law or even politics, but intimately linked to them. Here I'm also intervening in a broader conversation in which Salafis who engage in politics or sometimes known as Islamist Salafis, sometimes known as political Salafis or Salafis who engage in political violence, Salafi jihadis or jihadi Salafis are disproportionately represented in the literature and in the news coverage of Salafism, even though the vast majority of Salafis are actually quietest. They don't engage in political contestation. To the extent that they engage in politics, we might say they engage in the politics of everyday life. I'm also very interested here in to intervene in a conversation about the reproduction of the prophetic paradigm in the 20th century. And by that, I mean, there's no question that throughout time and space since the rise of Islam, Muslims have been seeking to emulate the Prophet Muhammad. And there we can absolutely identify a continuity. I'm not arguing that this impulse towards emulation is in any way unique to the 20th century. But what is distinct to the 20th century is this linkage between ethics and visibility in emulating the Prophet Muhammad. And I'm going to get into where I think that linkage comes from and what it can tell us about the development of Salafism as a movement. And finally, this book touches on a series of debates in the anthropology of Islam about the nature and roots of Islamic piety. It particularly engages with the work, as I noted, of Sabah Mahmoud and Charles Hershkin. And here I want to note something in particular about the work of Sabah Mahmoud, which has in some sense been overlooked. And to be clear, I think this is a really important book. But Mahmoud studies a series of four mosques. And she doesn't really identify who those mosques are affiliated with, ideologically speaking. She identifies the groups that they're affiliated with. Now, one of those groups that it's, they're affiliated with is the first mosque is Ansar Asan al-Muhammadiyah, Egypt's oldest Salafi organization. A second is affiliated with Jamaat Da'wat al-Haq, another Salafi organization. And a third of these mosques is affiliated with the Jama'iyya Sharia, the lawful society for those who cooperate to work according to the Quran and Sunnah, which, while not necessarily Salafi as an organizational philosophy, has significant Salafi influences within it. And, and this is actually a dynamic that is acknowledged by figures such as Ibn Bess, um, that he'll occasionally... He, this is one of the rare groups that's not strictly Salafi that gets a compliment from him, that they get Salafi Akida right. 
So looking at Mahmoud's story as a disproportionately Salafi story, I have a particular focus on how she understands piety and visibility. Namely, for Mahmoud, in the story that she tells, and also the story that Hirschkin tells, piety is primarily an internal state. The visible is secondary, if not tertiary. Whereas for Mahmoud, it is the Islamists who are concerned with visible performance. And what I argue in this book is that this is not representative of Salafism during this period. Um, and more broadly, she argues that the regulative logic of the women's mosque movement is derived from the pre-modern Islamic theological tradition. And I offer a challenge to that approach as well. Now to tell this story, I had to go a bit far afield in terms of sources. A lot of scholarship on Salafism draws on these major theological and legal compendia. These are obviously really important sources. But what I would say is equally important in the understanding of the development of ideas and practices over time. And here I'm making an argument not just for the consideration of these kinds of sources in social history, but also intellectual history, is the form of periodicals, magazines, journals, pamphlets, because these give us a sense of the granular process by which ideas and practices emerge over time. And indeed, looking at periodicals in particular help us understand how it comes to be that certain positions are canonized or made orthodox in the form of pamphlets, that we get the process. We also can trace when Salafis are not talking about these issues in the clear ways that they later discuss them. Now, to tell the story, I focus on Egypt, but this is a story that draws heavily on sources from elsewhere in the Middle East, particularly from Syria, Saudi Arabia, and Kuwait. And in line with the fact that Salafism is a transnational project, defined not merely by what is going on locally, but also by a set of intellectual networks that are transnational networks of migration as well, particularly between Egypt and Saudi Arabia. So too does the book follow those paths of migration. And in the book, I make an argument about the origin of four key Salafi practices. One, praying in shoes. The second, the beard. The third, gender segregation. And the fourth, the prohibition against letting one's robes hang down, or ismail. And these four practices give us a story of the varying trajectories of re reproduction of prophetic practice. And in the case of praying in shoes, in some respects, is the most surprising trajectory we have, because this is a practice that in the 40s and 50s is really valorized by leading members of Ansar Sunan al-Muhammadiyah, but in the face of political repression and social program, by the end of the 20th century, Ansar Sinna's leaders are making arguments for why one should avoid engaging in this praiseworthy practice rather than performing it, which is not what one expects from Salafis. So the question then is how should we understand Salafism as a project? Where does it come from? Now, the Salafi self-understanding in this respect is that Salafism comes from the Quran and Sunnah, that it's directly derived from the Quran and Sunnah. And we should take that self-understanding seriously. Salafis are deeply committed to these two textual corpuses. But that's not enough. And in the book, I offer an argument that the, the linkage between ethics and visibility that I argue is at the center of Salafi piety in the 20th century Middle East actually emerges from 19th century modernizing states and the role of uniforms and dress within them. And particularly here, I'm going to focus on Egypt and note the emergence in the 19th century of uniforms for both soldiers 
and students. Um, and this is really indebted to the work of Khaled Fahmi in particular. And the point here is that in the mid-19th century under the Ottoman Egyptian state, it increasingly became the case that to participate in these state institutions, one needed to dress in a certain way. And that dressing in that way was not merely a form of regulating individual practice, but it suggested you were on board with this project, that you were signaling with your clothing your allegiance to a particular state, to a particular project. And this is something that we see persist under British colonial rule beginning in 1882 and then under semi-colonial rule beginning in 1922. And here I just want to note a point that Tim Mitchell um, in his classic book, Colonizing Egypt, makes about the models of subject formation under colonial rule. And he specifically refers to something known as the politics of the self, this idea that Egyptians need to self-regulate in the service of a broader social whole, that what they look like is actually reflective or is assumed to be reflective of what they stand for. And part of what's so striking is that these understandings of the linkage between one's allegiance or ethics and visibility carry over into the interwar period. And here I'll just give a very short example. In the 1930s in Egypt, we have a battle between various shirts movements. So the blue shirts of the Waft, the green shirts of young Egypt, we also have the broader emergence of the Effendia as a cultural category, this middle class cultural, this middle cultural stratum. And to be an Effendi is to wear a suit and the tarbush. Uh, and there's a great deal of discussion spilled over what it means to be an Effendi, what it means to perform one's Effendihood. Um, I, Lucy Rosova's book is particularly fantastic in this regard. The point here is that we have this linkage between commitment to a particular cultural ideal and how one dresses. And indeed, an assumption that how one dresses really brings home one's ideological commitments. And here I'll note an episode from 1936 between young Egypt and the Waft. They were at this point in a pretty contentious relationship. The blue shirts and the green shirts were essentially their paramilitary organizations. And at some point around in 1936, the WAF's leadership says to its rank and file in the blue shirts, take off your shirts. We don't want to provoke young Egypt at this point, which underscores the, the symbolic centrality of wearing the blue shirt to ideological contestations during this period. It underscores this assumed linkage, not only within the WAF, but between the WAF and young Egypt of the linkage between ethics and visibility. So now we get to the topic that you actually were expecting to hear about, the Salafi beard. The origins of the sort of the beginning of this talk are really, you know, Walter Armbrust's fault. Now, part of what's interesting about the 30s and 40s, and this is a point that Henri Lozier has made, is that under colonial rule, the dividing line is still between colonizer and colonized, which overlaps, but is not identical to a divide between Christians and Muslims because there are, of course, Coptic Christians in Egypt who are indigenous to Egypt. But in many ways, this line between Muslim and Christian is a dividing line of the colonial project. And that's part of what's so interesting about the 30s and 40s among Salafis is that there's very little discussion of what a distinctly Salafi beard looks like. Instead, there's simply a discussion of the importance of growing a beard. And in 1940, the founder of Ansar Sunnah Muhammadiyah, Muhammad Hamid al-Sikki, is asked this question. And he essentially responds, you should grow the beard and let it become plentiful. 
that's his advice on what a proper Islamic beard looks like. Grow it and let it become plentiful. He then expands on the fact that it serves not merely to distinguish Muslim men from Muslim women, but to distinguish Muslim men from their non-Muslim counterparts. So on the one hand, he's conscious of visible distinction, but he isn't yet concerned with making a linkage between necessarily between ethics and visibility, and he certainly hasn't specified the required length. Now, part of what makes this lack of specificity so interesting during this period is that the Muslim Brotherhood has a clear definition of the beard at this time. And here I just want to show you three, a picture of three men. First, Muhammad Hamid al-Sikki, the founder of Ansar Sunnah. The second, Abdul Rahman al-Wakil, a leading figure within Ansar Sunnah, who eventually becomes head. And the third, Hassan al-Banna. I'm going to simply note something. Their beards aren't that different. They look pretty similar. You couldn't tell one as a Salafi and one as an Islamist. This will soon change. Neither al-Sikki or al-Wakil had anything close to the fist. Now, there's two reasons why this is interesting. The first is the, the process by which the Brotherhood articulates this model of facial hair. And this comes from a 1944 article published in the Brotherhood's journal, Al-Ikhwan al-Muslimun, by a scholar by the name of Asayed Sabah, um, who later, a couple of years later, publishes Fiqh al-Sunnah, which is this key legal text for the Brotherhood. And Asabic makes the argument that men should grow their beard, but not let it become excessive. That the moderation, that wasatiyah, is the best in all matters. Now, this is clearly adopted by Al-Banna, but part of what's so interesting here is not simply that Asabic takes this particular view, but the source that he uses to justify it. So Salafi claims to the fist as a beard, as the minimum length for a beard, come from a hadith about Ibn Omar going on Hajj and Omar. Ibn Omar used to trim his beard to a minimum of a fist before going on Hajj and Omar. Okay, that's the hadith report. Now, what's fascinating is this is later used by Salafis, but here it's used by Sayyid Sebek to argue that one can trim the beard. He completely ignores the fist as a measurement, and he focuses on the practice of trimming the beard, which, you know, again, further underscores the limits of literalism as an approach to the Hadith corpus, generally to Salafism in particular, because here we have two radically different understandings of this particular Hadith report. Now, we also might note that it is during the subsequent period that the cost of growing a beard increased substantially. And here we might move from the 30s and 40s to the post-1952 period, particularly the point after 1954, when Jamal Abdel Nasser is in power um, unequivocally. Before that, it was him and Mohammed Magid, um, and in which we see the emergence of a major crackdown of serious repression of the Brotherhood after an attempted assassination of Abdel Nasser by a couple members of the organization. And this is essentially used as a pretext for cracking down on the organization more broadly. Um, and it's during this period that the beard becomes a target of repression, um, that we have these memoirs of Muslim brothers from this period who describe how when they were in prison, particularly in the military prison, the Sisters of Hardy, their beards were shaved half off and their, the top of their head, the hair on the top of their head was shaved half off. And there's also a speech that Abdel Nasser gave in 1966 in the Delta textile town of Al-Mahalla al-Kobra, in which he identified those who grow beards with the enemies of Egypt. And here I want to read his particular quote. So 
someone who grows out his beard comes to you and says that socialism is disbelief. Someone who claims that socialism opposes religion is the person who will take the country's wealth for themselves. Now, this claim was clearly directed at the Muslim Brotherhood, but it certainly wasn't limited to that. So it's unsurprising in this context that we don't see the development of a distinctly Salafi conception of the beard. These social consequences during this period are too high. The cost of repression is too high. The risk of repression of being even associated with the Brotherhood is significant. Um, and this challenge of association is something that will come up also in the 1980s. All right, so this brings us to the 1970s, to the rise of Abdel Nasser's successor, Mohammed Anwar al-Sadat, to the rise of a broader Islamic revival in Egypt during this period, which involved not just Islamic movements, such as the Brotherhood, the Jamia Sharia, or Ansar al-Sunnah, not just the Islamic student movement, the Jamia Islamia, but also state institutions, such as the Ministry of Endowments, particularly the Supreme Council for Islamic Affairs, as well as the Islamic Research Academy at Al-Azhar University. But what I wanna focus on here is a particular aspect of activism during this period, namely that of the Jama'a Islamiyah. And here you can see an image of Jama'a Islamiyah Eid celebrations from the late 1970s or early 1980s. And here I simply wanna note two things. One is that many, but not all, of these men have bushy beards. The second is that many of them are wearing the jalabiyah, which is a long-standing feature of Egyptian dress in the countryside, but was repurposed in the 1970s as a neo-traditional marker of authenticity. But really, I want you to focus on something in particular about the jalabiyah, namely that these jalabiyahs do not appear the men wearing these jalabiyas do not appear to be observing the prohibition against letting one's robes hang down, uh, which would require that the jalabiyah cease at the ankle. It doesn't for the most part. So here we have further hints that the prohibition against Isbel has not quite been revived yet. Now, some members of the Jamaat Islamiyah end up joining the Brotherhood, so the question of Isbel wouldn't be an issue here, but some, many of them end up joining Ansar Sunnah al Muhammadiyah. And what's so striking is that Isbel doesn't seem to be in effect here yet either. Now, in this period, there's this broader challenge for Salafis, namely the association of these bushy bearded men with violence, both within and beyond Egypt. In the case of within Egypt, we have the example of the upper Egyptian branches of the Jama'a Islamiyah engaging in coercive enforcement of the Islamic obligation of commanding right and forbidding wrong. There are three levels to this obligation by, you know, in one's heart, by tongue, and by hand, and they are choosing to engage in the first, uh, which is in many respects actually not really reflective of how this duty has been understood historically, because, you know, if we were to look at Michael Cook's magisterial work, on the, uh, the duty to command right and forbid wrong, we'd very much see that the coercive enforcement of this duty in Islamic history almost exclusively is identified with state authorities, in part because it is such a double-edged sword. It's a powerful mo mode of social regulation, but it can also lead to incredible infighting. It's also the case, though, that there's the association of bushy-bearded men with violence outside of Egypt. And here we come to late 1979, to the attack on the Grand Mosque of Mecca by the Jamea Salafiyah or the Salafi group that commands right and forbids wrong, that does Hesbah. 
And part of what's so striking about the Jama'a Salafiyah Muhtasibah's attack on the Grand Mosque of Mecca is not simply that they were wearing bushy beards, not simply that some of them actually appeared to have properly Salafi beards, that we can see trimmed mustaches among some, many of the men who have been arrested, but also the fact of how they are then understood. And here I'm quoting from a newspaper interview with Salman bin Abdulaziz in a Saudi newspaper from 1980. Now, Salman bin Abdulaziz is the current king. At this point, he was the governor of Riyadh. He's, of course, the father of Mohammed bin Salman. And he explained at this time in this interview in a Saudi newspaper, I spent a lot of time reading Saudi newspapers from this period. Um, he explained that the problem with the Jama'a Salafiyya Muhtasibah was not simply that they were kherijah, that they were kherijun al-adhi. It was also that they were hiding under the name of Salafism, that the issue was not simply their engagement in violence and that they resembled Haredith, but that they were laying claim to the mantle of Salafism. So this brings us to the late 1970s and particularly to Saudi Arabia, but to the role of a certain Egyptian in Saudi Arabia, a man named Ahmed Ali Taha Al Rayyan, who actually passed away recently. Now, Al-Rayyan had received his PhD at Azhar in 1973 and had gone to IUM to teach from 77 to 81. And the Islamic University of Medina was in some sense this fascinating intellectual meeting point of activists and thinkers throughout the Middle East and South Asia. It had many South Asian Muslim scholars and activists there. It had many Arab Muslim scholars and activists there. Now, what I'm interested in, though, is a series of articles that Al-Rayyan wrote in the official journal of the Islamic University of Medina in the late 1970s. And in the first of these two articles, he laid out the Hadith narrations regarding um, the necessity of growing the beard. And specifically here, citing Hadith narrations about the, the practices that orient one to God. These are the Sunan al-Sitra. And one of the Hadith reports he cited included both growing the beard and trimming the mustache. Okay, so he's foregrounding the beard, great. But what he also does, which is so interesting to us, is he introduces in Salafi circles or as a Salafi scholar, for the first time I could find a real discussion of the question of the minimum length of the beard. And he asked the question, should the beard be a minimum of one kabda or two, kabda or kabda type? And he argues that it should be, one can trim it to a minimum of a fist, to the extent that it serves a man's distinguished bearing and that those who reject any form of, tri of trimming, that they really risk it becoming frightening, um, that there's a real concern that this will look uncouth, that it will look frightening, and that the proper beard allows Salafi Muslim men to not just represent their piety, but to represent their masculinity. So we here have the fist as a measurement, we also have a real concern with visibility of what it looks like. It's not simply a question of reflection of internal state. There's a real social performance aspect here, too. But part of what's so striking about Adrian is how much of a minority voice he is during this period. We have a series of pamphlets written by Salafi scholars from the late 70s through mid-1980s. And we have no evidence here of a consensus on the fist as a minimal measurement. 
We have an, a, a 1982 pamphlet by a Syrian Salafi, Osman bin Abdul Qadir Asafi, that says nothing about the length of the beard. We have a 1984 work by a Jordanian Salafi and student of Muhammad Nasr al-Din al-Azadani, Ali al-Halabi, that states that the beard stretches, quote, from the hair below the lower lip to the hair that grows under the chin. Now, this trend also extends to Saudi Arabia. In a 1985 pamphlet, the Saudi scholar Hamoud al-Tawajiri notes that the Prophet Muhammad had a thick beard, that he was kath al-Lahda. Indeed, even Abdulaziz ibn Baz doesn't mention a minimal length of the beard in a 1983 ruling in the Kuwaiti Islamist magazine Al-Mushtama. So the fist is not yet standard among Salafis across the Middle East. And indeed, in a 1986 fatwa, the, head, the then head of Ansar al-Sunnah al, al Muhammad Ali al-Rahim, notes that it's forbidden to shave the beard, yet doesn't specify whether one can trim it, and if so, to what extent. There is, however, an Egyptian Salafi during this period that makes a clear statement about the fist, and that is Muhammad bin Ismail al-Muqaddam, who at this point is a second-tier figure in the Egyptian Salafi scene. He later becomes much more important owing to his founding role in the Dawa Salafia or Salafi call in Alexandria. But in the mid-1980s, he's very much in the second tier. And Al-Muqaddam argues that the question is whether one should trim the beard to a minimum of a fist or two fists, and that the most appropriate solution is that the beard not exceed a fist in order to avoid excess. But what's really striking here is that apart from al-Muqaddam, we have no evidence that the beard is the standard measurement, while a decade later, it will very clearly be the standard measurement. So the question then becomes, what happens? What happens between the mid-1980s and the mid-1990s? And to understand this, we need to think about the religio-political scene in Egypt during the second half of the 80s, namely, the role of jihadi groups, most of whom were not Salafi, in targeting civilian populations and state institutions, in assassinating ministers and journalists alike. Now, the problem here is the bushy bearded man problem, namely that you have Salafis with their bushy beards, you have jihadi, jihadi groups whose members sport bushy beards, and they're hard to visually distinguish. And so what we start to hear from Salafi texts from this period is this problem of getting hauled in with the jihadis because they look like them. This is the problem of state security services. And here we have a 1987 article, an editorial in Ansara Sunnah's mouthpiece, a tawhid, in which the journal's editor vents his frustration that in the aftermath of incidents of terror and violence in Cairo, and he uses those terms, writers have, quote, sought to make people fear every bearded man, accusing those who wear the beard and the long robe, robe the jalabiya or the jilbab, of terrorism. This is also echoed in Saudi publications, particularly in Al-Bayan, which is affiliated with the Saudi Sahwa, or Awakening Movement. And in a 1987 article in that journal, an author wrote an article titled, Where is Egypt Going? And noted the increasing popularity of the beard and the long robe in Egypt. And he complained that proponents of jihad in Egypt were not necessarily Salafi. So to come back to the anecdote that I opened with of Ahmed Taha Nasser and announcing what it means to be Sunni, we've got a visibility problem. We've got a problem that Salafis are not visibly distinct 
from their non-Salafi counterparts. And it happens to be the case that those counterparts are coming in for significant repression from state security agencies, and that quite the Salafis are not terribly happy about being dragged along, and understandably so. It's also during this period that we see the emergence of the beard as a condition of being a Salafi. And here, there's two fatwas that I want to bring to the story. One is a fatwa that was issued in response to a letter from a student at the School of Maritime Transportation in Egypt, Nakal Bahri. And it's to Abdulaziz in the best. And it basically explains that the School of Maritime Transportation requires that its students shave. What should this student do? The beard is obligatory, so what should he do? He's in the school. He is facing the coercive power of the Egyptian state, particularly of a set of regulations that also apply to the military. And Ibn Baz says, listen, we're going to try to sidestep the problem. Get me a letter certifying your religious commitment, a tazkiyah, from the head of Ansar Sana, Muhammad Ali Abdul Rahim, and we will help you transfer to a Saudi university, such as the Islamic University of Medina. By contrast, there's another fatwa request from 1988 as well to Ibn al-Uthaymin, another major Saudi Salafi figure. Ibn al-Uthaymin um, takes what one might say, say is the less accommodationist approach. His fatwa request he gets is from a conscript in the Egyptian army asking what should he do. And Ibn al-Uthaymin instructs him that the entirety of the army's lower ranks should disobey their superiors and should instruct them that, quote, this sin is the reason for the failure and defeat of Arab armies here to Israel. So Ibn al-Uthaymin is not providing uh, a workaround, let's say. And he's, you know, potentially exposing the folks who listen to him to significant consequences. Now, in this context, Ansar Sunnah's head, Muhammad Ali Abdul Rahim, offers something of an off-ramp. And he argues that while growing the beard is indeed obligatory, such an obligation is not absolute. And in those instances in which the, quote, discord caused by growing the beard is greater than that from shaving it, so invocation of fitna here, then shaving is permissible. So there are extenuating circumstances that can justify shaving the beard. But even this argument for extenuating circumstances underscores this broader shift that the beard has become a crucial aspect of what it means to be a Salafi, a non-negotiable condition, so that then to negotiate an exception, you need to plead extenuating circumstances. So by the mid-1990s, the consensus that a Salafi beard was distinguished by a fist length at the minimum and a trim mustache was the norm, not the exception. But in 1995, we find a heated debate on the topic of the beard between Ibn Baz and Muhammad Nasruddin al-Albani, so two of the three heavyweights of Salafism, two of the leading scholars. The, the issue at hand is whether one can trim the beard. Ibn Baz argues that the obligation to grow the beard is absolute, whereas al-Albani argues that it is permissible to trim it up to a fist, and that claiming that it's impermissible to trim it is constitutes vida idafia, or additional innovation, which is to say a requirement added on to a legitimate act of worship that is not actually based in legitimate texts. 
that the act of worship is required, but the additional requirement is illegitimate. Now, needless to say, lobbing a charge of bid'ah of any form in Salafi circles is really, uh, th those are fighting words. But leaving that fight aside, what we can know is that despite their differences, Ibn Baz and Al-Bani agree that the fist is the minimal measure. The fist is the reference point. Whereas just a decade prior, there was no such consensus. It was just Muhammad bin Ismail al-Muqaddam. So what's the significance of this story? How are we to understand Salafism's claim to replicate the golden model of the Prophet Muhammad's community in seventh century Arabia? Put differently, what does it mean to cite the past? How does citation involve a process of textual and social reconstruction? And what are the assumptions that undergird this project? Now, Salafi claims to continuity with the seventh century cast light on this movement's self-understanding, but they tell us very little about its origins or development. In this talk and in the book more broadly, I show not only that Salafism is a project best understood in terms of the ideological contestation of the 20th century, but also that its defining logic of its social practices, specifically this linkage between ethics and visible self-regulation, are inextricably linked to the emergence of powerful states and modern mass societies. Far from politicizing daily life, Salafism responds to the politicization of daily life by offering a distinctly modern ethics of communication. At the same time, though, such projects are often incomplete or ambiguous. As I argue in the book more broadly, multiple practices must be performed simultaneously precisely because a concern with individual practices of facial hair, shortened pants, or gender segregation is not exclusive to Salafism and because practices that distinguish Salafis in one country may not serve that function in another country. Now, an emphasis on practice also reveals the material and perceptual conditions that have transformed Islamic scholarly reasoning in the 20th century, building on previous scholarship that dissects the subtle yet significant transformations of longstanding tools of thick. And here I think, for example, of Junaid Qadri's wonderful recent book, on Sheikh Mohammed Bakhit al Muti'i, and of course, uh, Qasim Zaman's um, series of works. This book explores practices of citation as they are transmitted through Islamic print media and embodied by men and women in daily practices. My emphasis on Salafism as a project of social reconstruction and textual reconstruction through an ostensibly straightforward textual approach also challenges the, challenges the assumption sometimes implicit, other times explicit, that contemporary Islamic movements rely on a model of embodied practice that is continuous in its core logic with a pre-modern Islamic ethical tradition. This approach, most prominent in the scholarship on the anthropology of Islam, valuably casts light on engagement with pre-modern religious texts, yet the story of Salafi piety generally in a Salafi social practice in particular, reveals how the citation of past authorities is not necessarily a historically continuous act. As such, I argue that contemporary forms of Islamic piety are shaped primarily by the communicative conditions of modernity and the social world of the participants, and only secondarily by this discursive Islamic ethical tradition. 
Finally, this is the story of Islamic law that relies on media sources that are generally considered secondary to understanding the development of Islamic law. Now, previous studies that foreground such landmark religious texts valuably illustrate the endpoint of religious debates, but they don't necessarily tell us as much about the granular process, the ideological contestation, not merely within a given movement, but among movements that periodicals and pamphlets allow us to reveal. So I'm, my focus here is on the power of tracing the process by which legal rulings emerge through periodicals and pamphlets to understanding some of these, what are perceived to be more highbrow questions of Islamic law. Now I've covered a lot here, so I'm gonna leave it at that. I wanna thank Osama again for um, hosting and moderating, and I look forward to the questions and conversation that will follow. Thank you so much, Aaron. That was really sort of a, a wonderful and broad overview of actually in some respects, one main theme of your book, because there are so many other themes you listed for at the beginning. So I guess it's a message to all the attendees that if you want to get the full picture, get your hands on the book. And I'm certainly going to be reading the rest of it. Um, I've got so many questions for you, Aaron, but I'm I'm just going to ask you one to start off with. Uh, you, you refer to Junaid Khadri's fantastic recent work, and, and the contrast that he presents between uh, sort of the ruptures of modernity, transformations of a tradition, as it were, versus the Assadian, Mahmudian school of basically saying, well, there's there's continuity here, and that's what we want to focus on. And I, I haven't sort of read Junaid's work carefully enough to really come to a, a proper conclusion, um, but my initial impulse is to say that at what point is something a break with tradition that is so distinctive that it you know really deserves that sort of name and i i look at the way in which we're thinking about groups like salafism which uh, i think you very helpfully identify have these social dimensions there are group dynamics that arise from wider social forces and indeed political forces the emergence of the nation state and so on um to what extent is that dif different for example in the pre-modern world to the emergence of the madhab as a phenomenon right uh, that's such a radical transformation one could argue um, that we're no longer really referring to uh, sort of the Quran and Sunnah, or uh, as we uh, sort of might know in the early period, about the transformation from the localized Sunnahs of various cities yeah, 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 yeah. to the canonization of <laughs> Islamic law, as um, Ahmed Shamsi has uh, uh, nicely put it. And so, yeah, I, I kind of, uh, that's one of the things that makes me wonder. Um, is it a case of plus a change, so to speak? Like things are actually just happening the way they always have been on some level. Well, so I, I think actually the example of this transition to the madhab system and the adoption of the madhab, of the four Sunni madhab, of Ahl Hadith's critique of local rulings and this, this real reliance on the Hadith corpus as the basis for um, decision-making is a really interesting parallel. Now, in some sense, I think the transformation we're seeing in the context of modernity is as momentous as that. Um, right. Now, the question of whether the more things change, the more they stay the same, it's certainly the case that we have these kinds of developments in pre-modern Islamic history. Um, and I think works such as Junaid's are really helpful in helping us think of almost a post-Madhab world or a uh, world in which Madhabs 
continue to exist. I mean, he calls this, the, he uses the term the transregional Mathub, in which they continue to exist, but they don't have the same social, political, and institutional weight. And, and I think the scholarship, in some sense, is still trying to figure out how to make sense of that, yeah. how that has shaped Islamic thought and practice. Um, I think another really important shift is the nationalization of religious authority. Uh, the fact that we have, for example, in 1895, the emergence in Egypt of a state mufti, the, you know, the emergence of expertise as the model for ulama authority and so forth. We've got these really momentous intellectual and social shifts of modernity and also political shifts, of course. And the question then is, how do we make sense of them and what are the stakes of making sense of them in terms of this longer Islamic tradition? Because look, I went down the Islamic studies rabbit hole precisely so I could ask the question, not merely of what's different, but also what is similar. And what's so striking about the Salafis when we think about their project of reconstruction is that they cite a series of hadith reports when in talking about social distinction, um, they say a series of hadith reports that are primarily premised on distinguishing Muslims from non-Muslims in, in the seventh century. It's about distinguishing yourself from the Jews, the Christians, the Zoroastrians, and so on. Now, the challenge in the post-colonial period is not Muslim, non-Muslim distinction. It's Muslim, Muslim. It's internal self-differentiation. Mm -hmm. And in some respects, that makes the hadith corpus a starting point, but only a starting point for these practices of social distinction, that the question of internal Muslim distinction are really not present in the Hadith corpus um, in a way that is accessible to Salafis. So we can draw out the continuities of the pre-modern tradition, um, yeah. probably construed. We can even draw out the ways in which aspects of the Salafi project draw on that. What I would say though, is that there's a danger in making too great a claim to continuity. Right. Um, because the danger is not merely that it obscures the extent to which, to which Salafis are doing things in very different ways, and right. the internal MO of Salafism as a project, the ways that they are similar to their ideological adversaries, such as secular nationalists or Islamists, you know, the fact that all of them are concerned with visible with visibility that they're all concerned with beards they all have a claim about facial hair is not a coincidence mm -hmm. it's a reflection that they are all emerging in the shadow of the modernizing egyptian state mm -hmm. um but i also think that one of the benefits of foregrounding the ruptures of the 20th century is it allows us to think comparatively with other religious traditions and here and this is something i talk about in the book i really think with a 1994 article by Chaim Soloveitchik, who is a scholar at Yeshiva University in New York City, which is the flagship, uh, the academic flagship of modern Orthodox Judaism. Um, he's also the son of Joseph Soloveitchik, um, who, along with Rav Moshe Feinstein, is one of the two sort of towering figures of modern Orthodox Judaism in the 20th century United States. Now, there's this article that the younger Soloveitchik wrote in the Jewish Studies Journal Tradition in 1994, in which he identifies the increasing stringency of Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox or Haredi Jewish communities over the course of the 20th century. The, and he does it through a particular legal question of the requisite amount of food required to perform certain commandments, um, perform certain religious obligations. But essentially what he shows is that the religious the stringency expected by pious Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox Jews by the end of the 20th century 
would have made their predecessors, their pious predecessors, as it were, in the early 20th century, look like lax Jews, look like they didn't take the tradition seriously. And the question is, why? And here we can discover some real parallels with Salafism. Um, Namely, he identifies the spread of print and the normative power of modern science. And so we think about why it's so important to be precise First of all, Salafis aren't the only Muslims who care about being precise. It's worth stating that. Um, But it's also the case that this debate over precision among all Muslims, especially Salafis, is crucially inflected by the idea that it's precise practice that is most legitimate. And that comes from the the emergence of the normative dominance of modern science. We also might say that while the rupture of Soloveitchik's story is a rupture in some sense of migration to the United States and the Holocaust, the rupture of the Salafi story, of the Egyptian story, is the fall of the caliphate, the decline of the madhab system, and a new set of questions that come to be asked Mm -hmm. in in the context of a post-colonial state. And so part of the reason I argue for thinking about the 20th century isn't simply because that's where the material led me, but also because it really opens up, analytically speaking, some exciting comparative angles, because then Salafis are taken out of this box where Salafism is explanatory in terms of Salafism, or even out of a box of this exceptional Middle East or Islam to a broader global perspective. Right. Fantastic. Thank you. A really comprehensive answer. And it's um, sort of uh, also generated, actually, a question, and I hope the sort of Earlier questioners will indulge me if I go to the second question because it actually directly responds to or um, sort of asks you to expand your analogy. You did an interesting analogy with Orthodox Judaism and uh, the Haredim movement in, in uh, I guess, North America, but it probably extends beyond that. And uh, someone is asking you to maybe test the limits of your knowledge by asking, is there a parallel or similarity with Christian sects in Europe to Salafism? What is your opinion? I, you know, one one of the important things I have learned in doing a PhD is there are things you know about and there are things you don't know about, and you don't claim to know about things you don't know about. So I'm going to acknowledge that that's not a parallel that I can draw. This is, I think, wise for people like yourself and myself. (laughs) So I did want to ask, though, um, and uh, you, you kind of talked about the normative power of science. Does that come up in the book? I, I yes. Come up. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. Um, so, you know, it particularly comes up in the discussion of praying in shoes, because the essential question, legally speaking, of praying in shoes in the Hadith corpus, then in the Madhab tradition, is one of ritual cleanliness, of purifying the shoes so that they don't have najesta. Right. Um, right. Now, in the 20th century, no, so first of all, sort of two comments to make. One is that praying in shoes drops off with the exception of the Hanbali school among Muslims more broadly, in part because we have this transition from yeah. Islam as a desert project to Islam as an urban project. Mm-hmm. We have the development of these ornate mosques, um, often with very nice carpets, mm-hmm. um, and we have the emergence of this norm against wearing shoes in mosques. Mm-hmm. And then Salafis revive this in the mid-20th century. Now, the other thing I would note, though, and this is sort of striking to the 20th century, is that when Salafis need to explain why they're not praying in shoes, they 
conflate in fascinating ways between the purity laws of the Islamic tradition mm-hmm. and modern hygiene. So they, you know, one of the claims that's made is that Islam is the religion of cleanliness, din al-nathafa, and wudu and tayammum uh, are given as examples of Islam being the religion of cleanliness. Right. But cleanliness and modern hygiene are not the same as ritual purity. Right. It's not that they're inconsistent with them, but they're simply not the same. Right. And that the argument against praying in shoes Increasingly, it becomes, it would be it would be rude, it would muck up the carpet, even if you were ritually pure, and so forth. Which yeah. is to say, it's employing a logic yeah. that is essentially secondary. I mean, the other logic that's employed is, it will cause fitna in your mosque, so you yeah. shouldn't do it. Right. Um, but in the 40s and 50s, when Ansar, Ansar Sunna's leaders were arguing for the importance of praying in shoes, they didn't care that it caused a commotion. That was the whole darn point. It was this incredibly provocative move to right. distinguish Salafis from their non-Salafi counterparts. And part of the move here was, and, you know, part of what we learned here is that Salafis are often praying in non-Salafi mosques, and they really want to be able to distinguish themselves. And praying in your shoes is a real way to distinguish yourself. It's also a way um, to drive other folks absolutely crazy because, you know, what are you doing? You know, the response, right, is what are you doing? And so the fact that by the late 20th century, fitna is being invoked, su'al adab is being invoked, is really, really interesting. Right, right. Um, because that was the whole point from the beginning, in part, or not the whole point, but yeah. that was one of the points. It was emulating the prophet in a way that was also socially provocative. Right. I mean, your sort of comments about um, praying in shoes, and I've not read that chapter yet, but it's a reminder to me, actually, um, growing up in Manchester in the 1990s and, and 2000s, that there were people uh, in Manchester who called themselves Salafis who would actually create commotion in mosques by coming in with their shoes and insisting on praying in them. And so, I mean, these sorts of things have their afterlives in, in Europe as well. So I want to go to the uh, to another question from the audience, and I, I want to remind the audience, um, you know, please feel free to put in your questions. Um, so uh, Nabi Saki asks, I think that the discussion has been overwhelmingly about the Arab world. This might, again, stretch your knowledge a bit, but you are a student of Qasim Zaman, so I think it's the right <laughs> question. Directly. Do you want to say something about the Salafia in India, Pakistan, in Malaysia, and other parts of the Muslim world, perhaps? So this is a transnational story of Salafism that's focused on the Arab world and in particular on Egypt. One could write a history of Salafism in South Asia, say with a group such as Ahli Hadith. And you know, one of the interesting things that we see among Ahli Hadith scholars in, over the course of the 20th century is the increasing adoption of the lakab, of the sort of name of a Salafi. You, know, you have the scholar's name, and they say so and so a Salafi. So it's clear that Salafism is also a project in South Asia. Now, I, I chose to focus the project on the Arab world, on Egypt in particular, because every transnational project needs a geographic center. What I would argue is twofold. One is that Arab Salafis have been have very much shaped this discourse, have much very much shaped practice. I'd also say though that there's some 
really interesting intersections between South Asian scholars and Arab scholars on this matter. Uh, and something I bring up in the book, but didn't mention in the talk today is actually a pamphlet that was edited by Abdelaziz Ibn Baz, and what was originally written by Muhammad Zakaria al-Kantalawi. So a leading Diobandi scholar from this period, it, it was a pamphlet on the beard. This was before any of these pamphlets on the beard had started coming out. Mm -hmm. um, and it was discussing the Qabda, but this was a Diobandi scholar. This was not a Salisi scholar. And it, this was, happened to be a Diobandi scholar who in the mid 1970s had migrated to Saudi Arabia. It had originally been published in Urdu and here it was being translated in Arabic. And so this is in some sense, there's a story to be told after my story I, um, about right. the interaction between these understandings of the beard between the Middle East and South Asia or between the Middle East and Southeast Asia. So I started, so in writing this book, I certainly wouldn't say that my ambition or what I achieved was to tell a comprehensive story sure. of Salafi practice throughout the world. What I would say that my goal was is to tell a, an in-depth and nuanced story of the emergence of Salafi practice in the Arab world, a key center, and to reveal the logic that drove the emergence of that story, to tell us something about the emergence of Salafism as a social project. Right. Uh, and I would say that were I to focus this on another, were, were this book to be written about Salafism in another part of the world, the trajectory in terms of the local specifics might look somewhat different, but I strongly suspect that the ultimate end result will be pretty similar. Right. Thank you. Um, so I, I wanted to actually uh, ask you specifically about a point that you make midway in the presentation about, I mean, really wonderful sort of set of three photos, right? Where the beards are yes. indistinguishable from each other. So Hassan al-Banna, um, Muhammad al-Faqih, and Abdurrahman al-Wakil. And uh, in, in some respects, uh, in a sense, the Qabda hasn't really come of age in, in the modern era yet in the Egyptian debate. Incidentally, I mean, Muhammad Zakaria Kandahlawi, the Dobandi position on the Qabda is pretty normative with the Hanafi Madhab, as far as I understand. So, I mean, there is, uh, yeah, I mean, um, that's my sense within the Hanafi Madhab. It's like, it's supposed to be a Qabda. And so yeah. Dobandis are visually sort of, when it comes to facial hair, indistinguishable in my view from Salafis, right? But in the middle of the 20th century in Egypt, you have a number of very prominent figures who don't really seem to have beards um, or, you know, what we would recognize as beards today, right? And I, I wonder if you could perhaps um, explain a little, I mean, I think I've even seen Qaradawi, you know, clean shaven. Um, he, of course, born 1926. You have people like Ahmed Shakir, who is, you know, a towering figure in, in Hadith studies and um, highly respected by the Ansar Sunnah. Uh, Muhammad Abu Zahra, so the sort of like ulama who are associated with the Azhar, very often just clean shaven. You think about all yeah. of the famous Qaris, like Qari Abdul Basit, right? And so I, I wonder, like, and, and Sayyid Qutb, I mean, comes from a literature background, so maybe that's to be expected. But I, I kind of wonder, it's one thing to say you have to have a fist length. It's another thing to say it's perfectly fine to be clean shaven. And I, yeah. I wonder if you, if you look at that debate in the book at all, that, you know, people are being clean shaven, because there's obviously a range between those two positions. Yeah. So I, I think this is a really interesting question, because the pre-modern model of an Islamic masculinity 
is a bearded man. Um, but this is what distinguishes a mature man from a boy. Um, but this is in some sense the mark of having um, completed puberty. And you know, Khaled Al-Ruaheb's work on this is particularly uh, helpful and fascinating. And also Asana Najma bodies. And so the question then is, well, so what changes in the 20th century? And here, I really think it's the model of secular nationalism, of the clean-shaven man. The clean-shaven man as representative of progress, of a future for Egypt, of the intellectual and social and cultural pressures that that put on Azharis. Um, we already know that they were in a position where they had to really reformulate their claims to intellectual authority to respond, not merely to this radically new intellectual terrain, but also to the fact that the position of the ulama within the madhab system as essentially mediators between ruler and ruled um, was really being effaced by the rise of mass politics. Yeah. That, and this is part of the reason why people like Muhammad Hamid al-Fikki and the second um, head of Ansar Sunnah, Abdul Razak al-Afiti, mm-hmm. are educated at Ansar and then leave because they're ultimately interested in playing a role in politics and, and society broadly, and Al-Assar just doesn't appear to offer opportunities for that. Um, so we have kind of this massive dislocation. And in the context of this massive dislocation, we have a model of the Effendi, of the clean-shaven man with a mustache. And this is something of a cultural ideal. Um, and it's sort of one of these fascinating cultural ideals, because while it's linked to folks who are middle class. It's also performed by those who wouldn't fit that category economically. And it's a real question for Azharis because one of the real challenges of this period for Azharis scholars is that Azhar as essentially an, a ladder of social mobility declines precipitously. That it still works for an elite, but and it's still remarkably um, accepting of folks who are blind, such as Abdul Hamid Kish. Um, And this is, you know, so there are still aspects of this old tradition that one can succeed in, but these are exceptional cases. And that the, for a lot of folks who are considering an Azhari education, or for that matter, um, as you know, another Oxford grad, Hilary Kalmbach's book on uh, Dar al-Ulum shows, are considering, well, can I split the difference and go to Dar al-Ulum? The question of Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, The question of how to navigate not just questions of facial hair, but the broader questions of socioeconomic mobility and identity that facial hair index are really challenging ones. So I find it altogether unsurprising that Azhar scholars often don't have beards. I will also say that this is one of the critiques that Salafis make of Azhar, that the scholars don't have beards anymore. This is the evidence that Azhar has so declined, that it's an embodied visual evidence. That this is what tells you they're not really committed anymore, that they're really not the heirs of the prophet anymore, that they can't even keep a beard anymore. Mm-hmm. And so here we might think of the Salafi claim to the beard as in some sense, you know, we have this pre-modern Islamic tradition of the beard as a marker of masculinity, generally Islamic masculinity in particular. Then we go, to the Secular Nationalist Project, and then we can see Islamic movements and in their emphasis on the beard as reacting, as drawing on the pre-modern Islamic tradition, but fundamentally 
and unmistakably reacting to the secular nationalist challenge. Fascinating. Um, I wanted to sort of ask you about, and perhaps just a reflection on the, the on I guess uh, the sort of ongoing debate in some respects about uh, what is it to be a Salafi. So mm-hmm. I mean, this is it's a very wide ranging debate to be honest. That there, there is the genealogy genealogy question, which you kind of allude to in your introduction with Henri Lozier and, and Frank Griffel and so on. But but at the same time, there's also the question of our typologies, and, and this is something I, I kind of struggle with as a scholar. I, I talk about this a little bit in my book. Like, what does it mean even to categorize these people? These are useful typologies, they're heuristics for analysis and so on. But what you described from Ibn Arthaymin, which doesn't altogether surprise me in terms of what he told uh, all the junior officers of the Egyptian army, <laughs> isn't terribly quietist, is it now? And we yeah. he's always categorized as a quietist. So, I mean, I, I think that I mean, these, these, I, I think you'll entirely agree that these sort of categories are um, archetypes that we're using for convenience, but they're all yeah. um, sort of bre- breaks of the trend. How do we understand Ibn Arathamian? Because that's an extremely subversive <laughs> position. To yeah, take. yeah. Well, I think, I think it's not um, coincidental that Ibn Arathamian makes the statement about officers in another country. Right. Uh, right that we might think of quietism as reflecting a relationship to local political authorities right. rather than a lack of engagement with questions of politics, lack of ability or interest in engaging with questions of political authority more broadly. Right. Uh, I think we might also say that there is a certain ambiguity between holding these theological and legal commitments um, and commitments to practice, mind you, right. and quietism, that there are instances where quietism as a project, um, which I think they do take seriously, normatively speaking, Mm. but that there are instances where one really needs to thread a needle. And I'm thinking to Yoas Bagamaker's book here on Abu Muhammad al-Maktisi, where he tells the story of al-Maktisi saying, you know, when when there's a ruler who's engaged in clear kufr, what to do about it, and sort of Maktisi saying something to the effect of, well, I will would simply say I would not call the person a kafir, but I would simply note that this particular action could be categorized as kafir. Right. Um, the sort of very very careful talk about the action, not the person. So I think look, I think the real the fundamental tension yeah. is about how these scholars understand tawhid, which you know of course all Muslims uphold, right. but the Salafi understanding of tawhid is both a minoritarian one on a theological level within broader Islamic history and also over the course of the 20th century comes to really expand to involve a set of questions or in this context, potential sources of conflict that simply weren't an issue 50 years before. So, you know, for example, this question of the beard it wouldn't have necessarily been an issue for a Salafi scholar in 1930. It clearly is by the late 1980s. Um, And one of the things I actually argue in the book is that this is because Salafi conceptions of Tawhid have really redefined the relationship between Ibadah and other actions. You have traditionally this distinction between abadat and mu'amalat, you have this broad category of urf or adab, custom, which differs across time and place. And one of my arguments is actually that Salafis 
draw on custom in a way that is historically discontinuous to the tradition, that they are they adopt the concept of custom that's actually taken from secular nationalism, the concept of custom in which customs serve as the basis of nations, as the basis of communities, hmm. to and say, you know, this is why custom is so important to Tawhid. And in doing so, they, on the one hand, this means that they can lay claim to authority to regulate a vast social arena, because these issues of social practice are no longer matters of local discretion. Hmm. They are matters of Ibeda that one can't disagree on. The problem have, is that this, have you found this explicitly stated uh, in this way, or this is your analytical sort of deduction? From so that? what I'm able to do is link between changing Salafi use of the term Ada right. and an article that appeared in the Syrian Salafi periodical Atamadun al-Islami right. in the early 1940s, right. uh, which we know leading members of, of Ansar Asuna were reading. This is an article by a non-Salafi, Mohammed bin Kamel al-Khatib. Uh, but what we see after that point is the slow adoption of precisely the concept that yeah. al-Khatib is setting forth in Atamadun al-Islami. And it's worth noting here, right, that Atamadun al-Islami also hosted Mohammed Nasr al al-Azani on a regular basis. Right, right, right. Um, and yeah. so this is, you know, I really, I, this was sort of one of the points of the book where I nearly fell out of my chair. And I said, oh my gosh, what? And, and this is, you know, not just important for understanding how Salafis view theology and law, but also this expansion of the domain of Ibadah yeah. is actually essentially the precursor to the emergence of the Salafi manhaj. That it's from 1930, the 30s to six, through 60s that we see this adjustment, this expansion of Ibeda into domains formerly occupied by custom. Right. And then based on that, we see the emergence of the Salafi Manhaj. Right, right. Fascinating. So, I, you know, I, I was right to sort of mention Henri Lozier, who shows up, of course, in your introduction in the footnotes, but his, his book, because your arguments seem to sort of fit quite well with some of what he's argued, obviously, in, in a transnational register. But I guess your sort of um, enriching the debate specifically with respect to Egypt. And, uh, yeah, it's been a while since I read his book, but I will revisit that as well. <laughs> <laughs> giving you lots of reading to do. I'm sure you have plenty of, I'm sure you have lots of time these days. <laughs> I'm sure. So um, I, uh, we have a couple more, uh, I guess they've been sent in, as, uh, in the Q&A, but they're more, I think, like comments. So I I guess we yeah. can close with these, uh, just your reflections on Ahmed Kandil's uh, sort of, yeah, yeah. Interesting. In Egypt, Muhammad Abdul wrote an article accepting Darwinian theory of evolution. So this is sort of, I think there might have been other people as well uh, around the time doing that. And then later, the Muslim Salafis um, refused or, uh, refused the theory of evolution. There seems to be a transition from the 19th, 20th century position towards science and modernization. Of course, you're going to point out that uh, Abdul doesn't fit that paradigm, but I'll leave that to you to do, I suppose. <laughs> so, so one of Lazier's argument is actually that Abdu never called himself a Salafi. That right. the conceptual history of that um, he was a proponent of moderate reform of al-Islah al-Mu'tadil, and that there is some case for considering um, that that the category of Salafia could encompass some folks to some degree right. in the period in the interwar period, but that really post post World War II this category really significantly narrowed. Right. Uh, and this is also how we explain why 
al Maktab al-Salafiyah, the Salafi publishing house, published a lot of things that totally don't fit theologically or legally with Salafism today. Yeah. Um, now, I think part of what's so interesting here is that this underscores a key driver in the formation of Salafism. And this is an argument that Lozier makes that this transition from colonial to post-colonial rule right. is a really important transition that because it means that it's not simply a question of internal distinction. It's that Egyptian Muslims for the first time have the opportunity to basically have it out over key issues with other Egyptian Muslims. Um, and so in this category, you really need to, in this context, you really need to explain where you fit in, what your appeal is. And so folks who essentially prior to quote unquote coming to power were linked in some kind of loose Islamic reformist alliance, they're different. And, you know, we see this in any kind of sort of opposition coalition. Um, once you have to really hash out those differences, well, then it, that coalition becomes increasingly hard um, to hold together. Um, right. And so, yeah, I mean, I think this is part of what I'm doing in this book, though, and I think this is important as we understand Salafis, is to really situate Salafis in their broader ideological world, to understand the ways in which they, um, while claiming distinction, are so fundamentally shaped by other movements. And here we might also think of the broader point about na nationalism always being transnational, mm -hmm. um, that all claims to national identity are not simply internally oriented, but they're also about contrasting yourself with other nations. You might also think about um, the global historian Christopher Bailey's point about the emergence of national dress in the long 19th century and the way in which the emergence of national dress is about nations performing for other nations, about the extraction of a particular element of indigenous clothing and the positioning of that as a national dress to compare with that of other nations. Um, and so I think it's precisely this process of clarification, of distinction, um, that really gives us a sense of, really allows us to place Salafism as a movement of the 20th century um, and avoid um, falling into the trap of telling a story of Salafism primarily in terms of the Quran and the Sunnah. Aaron Roxinger, it's really been a wonderful sort of hour and a half of discussion of your latest book, uh, In the Shade of the Sunnah, Salafi Piety in the 20th Century Middle East. Um, I think uh, I, I encourage all of the um, uh, audience members to try and get their hands on it and explore um, the other dimensions that we didn't really explore in quite so much systematic detail besides the beard. And you know, really, it's been wonderful just uh, having the opportunity to talk to you about your fresh yeah. off the press book. Well, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. And yeah, you know, you can buy the book on Amazon um, or from the University of California press website. It's probably easier on Amazon. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for this book to kind of be read by folks beyond those who study Salafism specifically, because I think it has something to say about modern Islam and the modern Middle East more broadly. Thank you very much. And we look forward to having you in Oxford in person in the not too distant future. Hey, you know, that sounds great to me. All right. All right. Take care. Take care. Good evening.